Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here again on Victorious Friday with, with a very special guest, a good friend as well. And uh, as we walk through this, we've been walking together for many, many years. In fact, as a centurion, as, as part of the Colson Center, uh, John and I have been uh, together for, you know, John, I think it's well over a decade now. Uh, when I received the Centurion, it was probably back in 2007, I want to say. Hey, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, it's always good to see you, Terrence. I wish you were in person, but since we're locked down on opposite end of the ends of the country still, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully see each other this year. Well, hopefully we can get back and, and, and get back in the air. You know, I was just telling Absolutely. you before, uh, before the end of this year, um, uh, Delta had me as one of the top 10% of <laughs> flyers, and it's not something I, I esteem for, but... Uh, but, you know, it was quite a, a busy year in 2019, 2020 went to a halt. Of course, 2021, we'll see where that goes. We're, we're praying yeah. for recovery for so many. And, and we certainly give, um, you know, our respects and condolences to those family members who've lost, lost loved ones. And so, um, you know, it's, it's been a tough, tough, challenging year. But, but you know what? When I look at 2020, it it, it really kind of, I think it was a wake-up call for all of us as well. And, yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I think there's a lot of things, Terrence. One of the things we've been thinking a lot about is, you know, we talked a lot about the pre-existing physical conditions to COVID, you know, that, you know, comorbidities, things that made the, the, the virus even more dangerous. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing an awful lot of social ones too, yeah. cultural ones, you know. Uh, you know, right now we're getting these numbers that are just dreadful uh, from the CDC and other places, from states about suicide rates, about addiction rates, particularly among young people. Now, you know, these are things that pre-existed COVID, uh, but COVID made them worse. They're kind of, you know, it's almost like COVID's the comorbidity on uh, what we have come to call deaths from despair. Um, and I think there are other things as well. I, I, I think, for example, Gosh, how quickly uh, the United States uh, political figures, elected officials, and and many Christians just kind of quickly accepted that church is non-essential, right? And the question is, is when we come back, uh, not only are we going to be able to regain our Delta status, but are we going to actually be able to see uh, church as being an essential part of ordering our lives? I mean, these are real questions that, uh, you know, seem to suggest that COVID is going to be a game changer, you know, culturally speaking for many of us, kind of a, a break where these trends that were kind of in the system suddenly, you know, uh, get spiked. And, and I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I, I think you're right on. Well, brother, what I like to do to start out is, is, is let our audience get to know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself as I know you as president of the Colson Center, but I know you wear a lot of titles and a lot of hats. So what I'm proud of is the fact that you know, your husband and, and father and all that good mm -hmm. stuff. But but give us a little background on you, my friend. Well, let's begin there. I've got three daughters. My wife, Sarah, and I have been married uh, now for uh, 17 years. Uh, our daughters are 15, 13, and 11. And we thought we were done. Uh, and then our three daughters conspired against us and prayed for about six years that God would give them a little brother. And uh, they won. So literally, <laughs> we go 15, 13, 11. There's an eight-year gap. And nice. now we also have a three-year-old son. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a surprise. Uh, the caboose, you know, as many people say. But yeah. 
man, life has been great. It's, it's, it's a power it's of prayer, life. man. That's all. <laughs> well, listen, there's no, no doubt in my mind that God likes their prayers better than mine because they won. And, uh, I tell you, it's been, uh, spectacular. Uh, not only, I mean, listen, he, he brings lots of joy into our home. He's, you know, boys and girls, I, for people to say there's no difference between boys and girls. I, I don't, I can't even fathom that just from the differences and, uh, things that shouldn't be different, but are, but, but also just watching my daughters flourish as big sisters, you know, it just kind of uh, struck a chord in their hearts and God grew them up in some really cool ways. And so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, and yeah, I'm the president of an organization called the Colson Center. It's one of the legacy organizations of the late, and I would say great Chuck Colson. Uh, obviously we know his tremendous work in the prisons for many years. Uh, kind of a reflection of his own personal testimony, uh, being uh, uh, having go gone to prison, convicted in a Watergate-related charge, and and coming out as a new man, uh, and spent the rest of his life taking the gospel back into to the prisons, dealing with the uh, issues of incarceration, issues of justice, and so on, which also led him to spend an awful lot of time uh, trying to help the church understand culture understand what was happening in the world, being able to apply uh, a Christian worldview across the board to all of life, uh, you know, realizing that something was broken in the culture that was leading to the brokenness he was seeing in the prisons. And of course, the prison population during his life exploded. And that had to do with all kinds of factors. But, but, but he also realized, too, that the church was always at its best when it ran into the, the problems, ran into the brokenness, not out of them. And so that led him to start a, a daily commentary called Breakpoint, uh, which uh, many people might remember hearing on radio, you know, from Washington, D.C., it's Chuck Colson with Breakpoint, you know, with that kind of deep, raspy voice. And it's been one of the great honors of my life to carry that on. Uh, now it's uh, more than just on the radio. It's a podcast and email and people can find that. We just kind of try to take a daily story or uh, headline or topic uh, and try to bring a Christian perspective to it, both as a way to, so that Christians can better understand the culture, but also kind of as a, a way of, you know, showing that, you know what, our faith makes good sense of the yeah. world. Uh, we don't have to keep our faith in church on Sundays and then, you know, bring a completely different perspective to bear Monday to Friday. That Christianity actually is true. Uh, with a capital T. Um, and if Christians can think that way, not only can we survive kind of the chaos of the culture, we can actually make a difference in the world. Yeah. And of course, we've seen that throughout history. So uh, th that's really what we do. Uh, you mentioned the Centurions program. Uh, that program continues under the name Colson Fellows. And, and it's been, uh, you know, we have about 500 people in 46 cities across America, and even four international cities studying with us over the course of a year, uh, just wanting to go deeper in their own leadership development. And so that's been, a, 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 that's been a lot of fun to see that grow. And so that's what I do for work. And uh, that's my family. And, and God's, been, God's been really good to us, really kind to us in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's good, man. So I, there's a couple of changes I have to make. One, I've got to change my, my whole thing from Centurion to, to, <laughs> to Colson Fellows. Right. You may so change I, it, but it's completely up to you. We've had yeah. some that are like, no, man, I'm a centurion. Right. I'm going right. to stick, which you know. is great. Yeah. I though, mean, I got to get an invite to the party, man. I, you know, I got to get an invite somewhere. Come on. I mean, that's probably why I'm missing out on the invites because I, you know, I haven't changed my, my, you my official your name. Yeah. No, so, it's good. So that's one reason I realized why I'm left out. Now I feel better. 
The second thing, though, man, you you just made you just told me earlier it's not about the radio; it's commentary now. You you're moving up to this whole sophisticated, uh, you know, way of networking with people and connecting with people. So so I'm going to ding you on that radio thing and, and talk about commentary. That's hey, radio I'm still matters. Radio is still a big deal. Uh, yeah, but you know, a lot of people spend uh, a lot of time on. Uh, you know, social media. And certainly we all look at our email. I mean, most of us look at our emails before we get out of bed in the morning, right? So, uh, you know, it's just, they're all ubiquitous ways. We just live in an age where people can get in touch with us all the time for better or for worse. Well, brother, we're here as as Victoria's family. Um, Our passion is to see families thrive. And we think in order for that to happen, it needs to have a foundation of a biblical, biblical foundation, biblical truths implanted in the home. And and parents, you know, we have a natural, uh, what I call discipleship group. We, we have a, a built-in discipleship group. We're, we're the leaders of the group and, and we have our students, our, our, our children. And when I think of discipleship, that word is used so loosely. The way we define it is the way one imparts their life to another person's life for them to go and do the same. And, and our passion is to see a generation. And we think of generation as 25 years, uh, to see an entire generation uh, transformed to see and see parents who are equipped and responsible to raise their kids in the Lord. And we based it off of Ephesians 6, 4 and Deuteronomy and so many other passages, but Ephesians 6, 4 says parents really, it says fathers really speaking to parents don't exasperate your children, frustrate them, which I, I kind of get an A plus from time to time, but it says to train and instruct them in the Lord. And so, um, one of the reasons that um, we started this passion is because I was falling short as a spiritual leader of my own home. Uh, I was building businesses like Coca-Cola, et cetera, and J&J and Citibank, but I was failing in, in building a strong, thriving, uh, biblically-based uh, family and home front. Um, but not in the way that many people might assume. Uh, we were certainly doing the what I call the disciplines of faith. Uh, church and reading our Bible and sharing, you know, prayer and so forth. But, but what I was not being responsible for as a father, as a spiritual leader, and and, t- and being intentional in raising them and and teaching them these biblical values and and, and teachings and truths and, and principles. Uh, so, uh, you know, as we expand and talk to parents around the world, really, I have to train a hundred thousand parents in our curriculum and our workshops and so forth. Uh, one of the things that's very important is biblical worldview. And, and the thing you talk about, John, which is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today, and, and John, we'd like for you to address, is really you, you do work around this, what we call this practical guide to culture. And we believe culture is important. We believe no, no nation can thrive without a strong, healthy family foundation. Uh, so I'd like for you to maybe talk a little bit about that. What tensions do you see? Um, um, where do you see things going as we look at trends over the, over the last 10, 20 years versus now, just give us this, this idea and principles around practical guide to culture. Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks. I, I, uh, uh, you, you know, we love our kids and as Christian dads, we want them to, to know God. We want them to, to love God. We want them to to, to trust him, to follow him and obey him. And that would be difficult enough if all we had to deal with were their own kind of independent 
thinking and their own sin nature, right? If it was completely a vacuum of any external forces, but all it was was just dealing with their own hearts and minds, that would still be a challenge. Like, I remember when my uh, oldest daughter was just three years old and uh, my, uh, my middle daughter was just one and I was traveling somewhere. My wife called and she said, you never believe what happened tonight. And I said, what? She said, well, you know, we were putting the girls to bed and Abigail was tucking her little sister in. And on the way out the door, she leaned in and said, God will be with you tonight, Anna. God will be with you. And my wife said, I thought it was so sweet. But then Abigail looked at me and said, mommy, I told Anna that God would be with her and the other God will be with me. And I thought, oh, no, you know, my daughter's a polytheist. How did this happen? She's three. And of course, it, she was just trying to make sense of God. And, and you realize that that's what's what's happening. But the fact of the matter is, is even as they're trying to, you know, get their minds wrapped around the uh, who God is and, and who God's revealed himself. And even as they memorize scripture and, and try to find a way to, to take that and, and live out the truths of scripture in their life. They're doing. They're not doing it in a vacuum. They're doing it in a context of culture, and the culture is, a, 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 you know, brings all kinds of pressures and forces to our hearts and minds. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, "If you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish." Mm. Um, and of course, I asked a group of students. I told a group of students that you know anecdote, and I said, "Well, why wouldn't you ask the fish?" And they're like, "I don't know, because fish can't talk." I was like, "No, because fish don't know." that they're even wet. They don't know that something's not normal. And I think that's one of the things we have to realize as moms and dads, we've seen some dramatic cultural shifts. I mean, every time I speak to moms and dads, or particularly grandparents, they are just dizzy still by how quickly things went in our culture from being unthinkable to unquestionable. And when you think about kind of the hot issues of our culture, which I often, you know, put in three categories of, uh, of, uh, you know, sex, technology, and Trump, you know, those are the three big categories that are dividing generations, uh, that uh, the, the, the shifts are just dramatic, and we feel those pressures a lot. But you have to understand, we're, we're, we're immigrants to this, you know, these brave new worlds of, you know, digital technology everywhere, and uh, certainly these kind of hyper-imposed visions of sexual orientation and gender identity, and, uh, you know, we, we've seen kind of the buildup to this level of political tension. Um, our kids have never known any different. This is just the world to them. Mm -hmm. And Terrence, you travel a lot internationally. Uh, so, you know, like you don't really realize some of the norms of your culture until you go somewhere else. I took my oldest daughter with me in Australia a couple of years ago. And of course, as soon as we got in a taxi, she was like, dad, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. Right. And, and she didn't even realize that it's not a wrong side of the road or that what she considered to be the right side of the road was just a cultural norm that could quickly be something else. And, but that's what we're seeing on some really incredibly significant issues. And so one of the things we have to learn to do is to see what's happening in our cultural moment from the perspective of our faith. And I think what's happening far too often is people are seeing the faith through the perspective of the cultural moment. Mm -hmm. So as, as these trends change about sexuality or as everything gets put, all the weight of our culture gets put on, a, on an election or an appointment or a political headline, we do the same thing. And maybe the Christian part of our lives wants to bring some morality to it. But in reality, we're just not discerning these cultural norms and 
and how we should think about these things and how we should be different. Uh, I'll give you just one. I, you know, Chuck Colson used to love to say this. Um, despair is a sin because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. One of the things we, we, we tend to do is take a truth like Jesus is risen from the dead and we not only make it personal, which it should be, but we make it private, right? In other words, that this is what I believe, but it's not what's true about the world. Listen, the first followers of Jesus, when they said Christ is risen, they weren't saying, I, I think Christ is risen or, yeah. you know, this, the fact that Christ is risen brings meaning and purpose to my life. What they were saying is, no, Christ is risen and the whole world's different, right? Christ is risen, so he's king and Caesar is not. So basically, that's what we mean by a biblical worldview. It's taking these fundamental truths of scripture and seeing all of life as if they're true because they are. And uh, that's something that, that all parents have to do if we're going to disciple kids, because we're not just discipling the, to, to love God, we're discipling them to love God today. And so we have to navigate the waters that we're in today, the, the unique challenges of today. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of them, as we all know. Absolutely. And, you know, these waters are really murky right now. Uh, <laughs> Swirling, murky, you know, fast moving. Yeah, yeah it's dizzying. It really is. And, you know, your kids are going to grow up in a different, different world, right? A different culture than we did. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I, when I think about some of those challenges that your children will face, which we never even had to think about really. Um, what do you see the difference? I mean, where do you see the most major yeah. concerns or impacts or tensions that you have as a parent today versus, you know, versus 10, 20 years ago? Well, I, 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 uh, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I spend kind of my career looking at this stuff, so I don't want to take too much time. But one of the things we do, uh, my co-author and I, Brett Kunkel, uh, you know, in the book, A Practical Guide to Culture, is, is we use that motif of water uh, for culture. So what water is to a fish, culture is to a human. And unless you pull them out of it, you don't really realize that you're even in it. And, but, but we experience the waters of our culture in two ways. Uh, one is like waves, right? So if you've ever gone to the beach and you got hit by a wave, you felt it, you know it. And of course, there's no question we've been hit by pounding waves, right? Uh, the, the, the race tension in America has been a wave, you know? It's something that, you know, I, I kind of think our culture probably assumed, well, that wave had already passed us and now we can move on and we haven't, it. it's still an issue. And we still get ha hammered by those th th that wave. Uh, the LGBTQ issues, uh, all the letters of the acronym, they're kind of individual waves, right? I mean, the gay marriage issue was a wave and now the transgender issue is a wave. Uh, the uh, social media, social bullying, uh, addictions, pornography, uh, all of these things are waves. In other words, you feel it. But you maybe have had that experience, Terrence, where you've kind of taken your family to the beach or something and, you know, your kids run out into the water and then you're kind of, you know, getting your towel set up or your chair and you look up and they're not there. Mm -hmm. And you're like, they were just there a second ago. And then you realize they're down, just down in the water, maybe 10 or 15 feet to the right or the left. And you realize it wasn't a wave that took them there. They didn't even know they got there, but it was an undercurrent. And I think some of the most important forces of our culture the ones that parents really need to understand are uh, the undercurrents, these things that have shifted over decades and they, they shift so slowly, you don't even notice, but then you look up and you're like, 
we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> you know, we're, we're somewhere else. Yeah. So I'll give you a handful of them, Terrence, that I think are really important. The first one is, is a shift that we're in as a, as, as a globe. I mean, if, if people have looked back historically, then they've learned about different epics or periods of history, like, you know, the industrial revolution or the, the age of exploration or something like that. And that's what historians and sociologists do. They, they, they identify these things, the scientific revolution. Um, well, we're in the middle of one of those right now. Uh, and because uh, our age is going to always be known as the information age. Uh, and, uh, it, it, it's, it's not just the fact that we now have computers in our home. It's that information has replaced industry mm. uh, or information has come to dominate every single force on the planet, every single cultural sector of our lives. Now, if you look back, for example, and study the industrial revolution, you'll look back and go, you know, it, this is when the, the world went from being primarily agrarian uh, and, and went to being industrialized. We went from farms to factories and, we read about these things, you know, in kind of quick hits as if it happened overnight. But as you know, it happened over decades and it slowly impacted more and more of the world until the entire world was changed. Uh, family was dramatically changed by the industrial move because suddenly dad's not at home for work. He's yeah. driving to work. And then that necessita necessitated childcare or, you know, schooling. And so now you're getting bused to schools and suddenly home is just a place you wake up in and go to sleep in. But most of life is done outside of the home, not inside of the home. That's a pretty dramatic shift. Yeah. Um, we're in the middle of the same shift and it, it's not clear exactly how many different ways it will impact us. Yeah. But that shift is from industry to information. Now, one of the ways it's impact us is that ideas are everywhere now. Ideas that a kid would have never encountered, they're now encountering. Uh, they might've heard about atheists, uh, but now atheistic ideas are smuggled in through tweets, through social media posts, through advertisements, as are Buddhist ideas. You know, I, I used to do this thing, Terrence, where I'd go to youth groups and I pretend to be an atheist kind of as a teaching tool and I challenge their faith. And most of the time they were hearing things they'd never heard before. Today, if I do that, uh, they've heard it because they've seen Stephen Hawking videos or, you know, Chris Hitchens videos or Bill Maher videos. In other words, they live in the age of information, which means uh, they live in an age of competing ideas. Yeah. Which means if you and I, spend our life just preaching at them instead of walking with them through the messages of culture, then we become one of the many voices that they hear throughout the day. Yeah. I don't know about you, Terrence. I don't like this at all, but the truth is I'm one stop on the information bus of the week for our kids. I hope what happens at my stop is different. I hope at my stop, they're, they're able to get prepared for the other stops and they're able to think about the information that they're going to receive. But that's a dramatic thing. Uh, there's a very real risk that the religious um, influences on kids' life are just kind of like the teacher and Charlie Brown, wah, 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 because so, many, so much noises are back there. Yeah. The deeper thing too, Terrence, and I know you write about this and talk about this, I think it's so important, is that in an age of information, one of the things that changes is what we think it is to know. Um, so access to information, being able to Google something mm -hmm. is confused with having wisdom. Yeah, man, that's and, so good. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's just the big one. I, I think that there are other big cultural shifts. Uh, I'll yeah. give you one more. I, I yeah. could get it more, but I know we're, I, I don't want to ramble on too much, but there's just so many important ones to, to consider. Here's the other big one, I think, um, is that I think we have, uh, have to understand that most of the challenges to our kids' morality are actually challenges to their identity. Mm. Uh, we're tempted to look back at the last 30, 40 years and say, man, there's been a moral shift in this country. Things that were once wrong are now considered right. Things that were once right are now considered wrong, which of course is true. There's no questioning that. I mean, mm -hmm. we've changed our morality. I think, though, the thing we need to understand is that the changes in our morality have been the fruit, not the root. That's mm -hmm. an effect, not a cause. The deeper cause is that we've literally changed our vision on what it means to be human. I mean, the clearest example is, is all these cultural waves of sexuality, whether we're talking about saving sex for marriage, whether we're talking about whether divorce is okay or not, whether we're talking about uh, you know, identifying uh, as gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer or trans. We oftentimes as Christians, especially in our generation, Terrence, will talk about whether it's right or wrong to do those things. The culture is saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. And you can go to music, uh, like, for example, and this has been for decades now, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, the Born This Way song by Lady Gaga or uh, Love is Love, uh, you know, by Macklemore, or even in more recent days, just this idea, you know, I'm a freak or I'm, a, you know, you hear this language come up over and over and over. And then you go to what they hear about in, in school which, you know, if there, you know, many schools will teach them from the very beginning that this is the most important thing they need to figure out is their sexual orientation or gender identity, as if what they do sexually, what they feel sexually is the essential defining characteristic of who they are. And everything else in reality has to change to accommodate that. That includes their biological parts, right? I mean, think yeah. about it. Our kids are being told that what they feel is more real than chromosomes, hormones, genitalia, or reproductive systems. It's an astonishing, astonishing thing. And so that's why we really need to understand uh, that part of the discipleship of our kids, maybe the first part, is not just what God expects of them. In other words, not just how God wants them to behave, but what God says about them that they're made in the image and likeness of God, that their deepest and core identity is not bound up in feelings or emotions or instincts or impulses or attractions. Their deepest understanding, their deepest uh, uh, identity uh, as a human being is their relationship with God. Yeah. And um, that that's the other big shift because there, there's not a more consistent message that a kid growing up in these cultural waters will hear than a defined down, silly, sexualized version of their identity. And man, we know ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. Yeah. And the bad ideas about sex, oh man, how many victims are we seeing all around us? And they're having to make that decision or, or being inundated with these ideas and yeah. at a very early age. Early, I mean, I mean it's crazy. I mean, it's I crazy. Even, 
I can't even remember talking about something. I mean, we didn't talk about this. We were playing baseball and trying to figure out how to play marbles or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, we weren't thinking about, you know, sex and all this other identity stuff, but um, uh, at that age. And now our kids are really asking those questions at a very early age. Yep. And we have to be prepared to give an answer uh, because that answer isn't going to come from institutions that we once relied on, in my opinion. So um, I'd love for you to share a third point because, you know, it's a good, as a good speaker, you always need three points just to leave you with two. <laughs> you want two. me to get one more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to leave you with two just doesn't seem to be fair. And then I'll, I'll wrap up with a question. But go ahead and you bet. maybe share one of those third points that you Well, the, one of the third points is one of the things that you just mentioned. Uh, and that is you can't trust the institutions we used to trust. Mm -hmm. So you go back to the 19th, uh, 19th century, middle of the 1800s, and America's kind of in its rowdy, you know, adolescent stage. And Alexis de Tocqueville, this French intellectual, comes over, looks at the United States and uh, starts to write about it. And one of the things he says is that one of the distinctions of American culture uh, and, you know, uh, is not that it had some sort of a superior form of government or not that it, you know, somehow had superior citizens, because obviously during that time, you know, that we were still, you know, dealing with the, our, our deepest national sin of slavery, and he noted that too. But one of the things he did note was that uh, America was unique in that it had a particularly thick middle. And what that means is there's the government, and then there's the individual citizen. And most governments at some level will pit individual citizens versus governmental power. But the American experience had such a strong cultural middle and that both cultivated the citizens, you know, in, into the American way of life. And it also kept the big government from becoming too tyrannical. Uh, now, of course, it also maintained local cultural norms. Many of them, particularly in the South were, were, were dreadful and sinful. Uh, but one of the most, one of the most uh, profound shifts in American culture over the last five or six or seven decades has been that those institutions that made America so strong in the middle have become weak and thin. The family is the first one. Uh, look, you know, Chuck Colson used to say, it's either the conscience or the constable. Either you will govern and rule yourself, or you will be ruled by someone in power. The family is the primary institution that successfully allows kids to rule themselves, to develop things like self-control, and to live out of a sense of delayed gratification instead of immediate gratification. When the family is weak, then those characteristics aren't part of uh, their lives. I just actually spent a little bit of time writing uh, on uh, an article that was in the Atlantic that basically looked and said, you know, the, the, the latest pandemic to inflict America is family estrangement. And, and listen to what this researcher said. He said, most of the time, families are being estranged because people are saying stuff like, you're interfering with my happiness. You're getting in the way of me fulfilling my purpose. In other words, in the past, families were pretty much understood and family dignity and family responsibility was understood that I have a responsibility to the family. Now, increasingly, families are being broken up, be not because uh, someone is failing to fulfill their duty to the family, but because someone is saying the family fails to fulfill its duty to make me happy. Uh, that's a remarkable shift. 
Uh, we can also talk about the thinning out of church. I, I mentioned earlier the non-essential church. I mean, look, I understand government officials use that phrase and put a whole bunch of things in that category. I'm not nearly as concerned what Gavin Newsom says about the church as I am about what most of the members of our churches that, you know, found out, ooh, I can just, you know, go online and I don't actually have to relationally be committed to one another in this church environment uh, anymore. I, that's a thin society, not to mention, you know, the, the degradation of state power, not to mention all kinds of other things. That's a pretty dramatic thing. Now, one of the realities that comes out of that, Terrence, is all these other institutions, family, uh, you know, communities, uh, you know, uh, the, the church, uh, these things have become more and more thin, but they're designed to carry some of the cultural weight. When those things are really thin, guess what gets all the cultural weight? Politics. <laughs> and, and perhaps we, perhaps we saw, you know, during 2020, just how um, volatile American society is, how we're just at the verge of explosion, you know, all the time at, at a level that we haven't seen probably since the 70s, why? Because we live in a cultural moment where far too much weight is being carried by politics. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to let any politician off the hook for their rhetoric or their behavior or their policies or anything like that. What I am trying to say is uh, salvation doesn't come in Air Force One and cultural collapse doesn't come in Air Force One either. These are all pre-political realities. And right now, the pre-political institutions are letting us down. Now, we see that, and we might be able to separate those things, but uh, a younger generation yeah. is all they're knowing is they live in a culture where all the headlines says everything's on the brink of disaster all the time. And that's a high level of stress. Yeah. You know, it's almost like we've put the weight of the world on the next election or the next headline or the next bill or the next Supreme Court appointment and it's just squashing us and we feel it and we're trying to hold it up, but it's too heavy for us. Mm -hmm. And all these other things God created to allow us to take some of the weight uh, have thinned out, which by the way, should tell you and me, if we want to help our own kids deal with the stresses of life in the modern world, let's have a strong family. Let's have a place where they come back and they realize, look, we got your back no matter what. You know, uh, I'm not about making you happy. You're not about making me happy. Your primary loyalty uh, needs to be to this group of people. And from that loyalty, you can be loyal to your church. And from that loyalty, you can be loyal to your community. And that's the way it's got to go. Um, and uh, I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity, by the way, for Christians as well. Mm. All these crises are also opportunities, yeah. right? So in a culture that doesn't know what it means to be human and, and defines humanity down to sex, We've got the image of God. What a cool thing that is, right? In a culture that uh, just throws out messages as if there's no tomorrow and there's no discernment, we have a, a lens through which we can, we can discern. In other words, we've got great answers to all of these cultural crises uh, if, we, uh, if we take the time to apply them. Oh, that's, that's right on. And I think, you know, we've, we talk about here at Victoria's Family, needs to be home centered and, and church supported. And mm. we flip that and sometimes we don't even make it church supported. <laughs> um, we've got to, we've got to begin to take, take up our, our, our mantle, take up our role, take up our responsibility in the home. But, you know, there's a, 
recent survey that came out about 65% of parents feel inadequate to do that. Yep. And I'm an optimist by trade. So I'm thinking they want to do the right thing. They just don't know how. Yeah, that's right. We've gotten so far away from center. Um, we simply don't know where to start. And so, so we're, we're, we're being intentional mm -hmm. to say we can help in that, in that regard. Well, John, I like to wrap up this session with this. You mentioned that this idea of a bus stop. Yeah. And on your bus stop, you like for that stop to look different than the other stops. Yeah. In summary, give us an idea of that bus stop. Yeah. What would it that's look like in today's postmodern society? Yeah, man, that's such a great question. And I'm like you, where I'm realizing all kinds of time, uh, times where my bus stop needs to be painted or cleaned up or swept. And uh, thankfully, uh, you know, uh, I have my wife who's, uh, you know, who's so good at, at, at so many of these things. But I'll tell you a couple of things we try to bring in. The first thing is uh, habits, different habits. One of the ways that culture impacts hearts and minds is not just by what it says to us, but the rhythms that it puts us in. I mean, think about it, other than this year because of COVID, um, we take as a nation, we spend Thursday giving thanks, the Thursday in November giving thanks, and the very next day we trample security guards for flat screen TVs, right? Now, no one's out there beating the pulpit going, you know, stuff is more important than people, but we have a culture in which stuff is more important than people. And why? Well, because it comes through habits. It comes through just the rhythms that culture puts you in. And so you have to separate and rethink and say, you know, what in what cultural, in, in what ways is my life being more shaped by culture than by my faith? And um, what I buy and what I look at, you know, and, you know, just for example, the rhythms of constantly trying to be entertained or amused. So a couple of the rhythms in our home is, you know, no phones in the bedroom. You know, that's just simple. Uh, because I know the cultural rhythm is that the culture is going to consistently try to keep my kids attached digitally. And that's not good for their souls. Another one is Sabbath. Um, uh, Sabbath is a very countercultural idea. But from, you know, Saturday night dinner to Sunday night dinner, we unplug. We don't do screens. We try not to do commerce. Uh, just to be in a different place. Um, rhythms of being in the word, rhythms of how we do education. And so think about those rhythms. The second thing that is a big part of our bus stop is questions. Um, and this goes to that point where you can just be the Charlie Brown teacher in the background. But the two greatest educators in history were Socrates and Jesus. They didn't have a whole lot in common, but they did have one thing in common, and that is they were great at asking questions. And um, we ask our kids questions more than we try to tell them things, you know? Uh, I'll give you, in our book, we list out five or six questions that you can just keep in your back pocket, but I'll give you one that I found to be really, really helpful. It's the question, what do you mean by that? In a culture where there's so much information, you'll often find yourself using the same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary as the culture. <laughs> Right. So when you say God and the culture says God, you may not be talking about the same guy. Or if you say truth and they say truth, here's the biggie, the word love, the cultural lexicon for love is sentimental or sexual. The biblical definition of love is deep friendship. It's um, a sacrificial love. 
It's the goodness of God's creation that we are able to have affection for. These are the things C.S. Lewis wrote about. And so uh, we try to throw that, that question out a lot when our kids, you know, use a word like truth. Well, what do you mean by truth or freedom? What do you mean by freedom? What is freedom? Look, we don't agree on what freedom is in our culture. And the different definition of words make, makes a big difference. And the great point, the, the great thing about questions is that they create dialogues instead of monologues. Uh, they allow you to really get to the heart of what someone really thinks and believes. And man, I, you've had this experience. I had this experience. When someone clarifies a definition, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, that's a thought changing moment. And uh, because our definitions are the building blocks of, uh, of our hearts and minds. Yeah. And so those are two things that are really important in our home. Yeah. Um, That's so good. Yeah. I mean, we could get up with it, but those, those are two that we yeah. start with. Well, brother, I tell you, man, we've, I've enjoyed this conversation. We could go on for another three, four weeks and, and probably won't even touch the, the base. But for those who want to find more information around these practical guides to culture, um, where can they find more information, my friend? Well, hey, I really appreciate that. The Practical Guide to Culture book, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on CBD, wherever you get books. There's also been a student guide to culture based okay. on that content that was written for high schoolers. So uh, we really aim for really high school freshmen, high school sophomores with that one. So okay. just two, two ways. We have had a lot of families go through uh, that book uh, and with the kids going through the student guide. And then other than that, I always say, you know, if you're on Twitter, you can find me at JB Stone Street. Uh, if you're not on Twitter, don't start. It'll ruin your life. <laughs> and then uh, the, uh, the other place, of course, is, is the daily commentary breakpoint, uh, which you can just go to breakpoint.org or look up breakpoint uh, wherever you get your podcast. Fantastic. Well, I think we, we've had a, a winning Friday here and a, a winning um, a commentary. And uh, thank you, John, for just words of wisdom. Uh, parents, I hope that you've been encouraged. Uh, pastors and, and leaders, I hope you, you've been encouraged and, and tune in and get those practical guides to culture. Our culture is shifting uh, and we need to be aware of that. But there's a, we know the solution. We know the defense against it. So thank you, John, for just an excellent time together. Looking forward to catching up with you, my friend. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Terrence. God bless you, brother.